0: And it's hit hard to left. And that ball is gone. That new balcony, one of the fun spots in the ballpark here tonight. Somebody just got a souvenir.
1: Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Wednesday, April 12th. well Swelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith, our producers are Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. Ben, it is the morning after the Blue Jays' home opener at a renovated Rogers Centre where we, uh, well, not we because we've been on the road with them, but where Blue Jays fans and uh, people in Toronto finally got an up-close look at the, these uh, these new-look Blue Jays, these refurbished Blue blue jays they've totally overhauled the lineup the shape of the offense is different uh they're not gonna just try to out homer opponents this year anymore they're gonna have an approach they're gonna shorten up they're gonna go the other way defense and base running baby uh and what do they do in uh in the opener they get five home runs from five different players and out slug a team looking just like the uh, the blue jays of old
2: Yeah, uh, you'll take five home runs anytime, especially from five different players. That's a great way for the Blue Jays to start their home schedule. And I think it it really was uh, quite the event at Rogers Center. I mean, to have a full house is always fun. And it looked great. I mean, the the ballpark is the same Rogers Center that Blue Jays fans have been watching baseball in for 35 years. It is one of the older facilities in baseball. That's not going to change. But there were some meaningful changes to the ballpark. And I think that's a pretty key aspect of what it means to be a blue jays fan is to go down there in person and really to me like some of the things that stood out most were having fans just right at the outfield wall seeing it when it's empty seeing it in the drafting drawings is so different than seeing it when it's filled with actual people and it was cool to see fans right up against that outfield wall there's no 10 foot gap anymore that 10 foot gap never had any purpose it was just there Um, No one benefited from it. It was no advantage to having it. And now they just have that enhanced kind of intimacy, that enhanced closeness of the fans right up against it. The bullpens right in the mix. uh, Really cool to see that. I think the bullpens are going to be an awesome aspect of of what unfolds there. So, you know, I I just think that really along the outfield level, that's the biggest shift for me observing day one of, of the new ballpark or the renovated ballpark.
1: So Rogers Center is just like gigantic, honestly, when you think about it. Because you you sit there and you look out at the outfield and you're like, oh, you know, it's like, yeah, they, they've done a lot of work, but it's I don't know, what's that, thirty percent of the building? The outfield, essentially, when you think about how big the actual lower bowl is for the the rest of it. So it kinda just because of how it gets dwarfed by the size of the building, you don't really like realize the extent Of the renovation, like how much work went into that. And then you start kind of like hearing about the renovation and it's like, oh, right. Like they worked, you know, for essentially like six months straight, like six days a week with 300, 400 workers on site every day uh you know working long days to um you know what like over two million pounds of concrete and you're restoring 18,000 seats and I mean like uh, like a million pounds of steel being installed and you know like 10,000 gallons of paint like it's just an insane amount of work that was done out there, so you don't really even appreciate the extent of it, I think, just because of how big Rogers Center is. And then also, that also makes you think of like, what is next offseason gonna be like? Because if we flash forward to December 2023 or maybe January 2024, some of this will depend on how deep into the postseason the Blue Jays go. There's gonna be a moment where you can stand like on the pitcher's mound in Rogers Center and look. Towards home plate, and there's going to be nothing behind it. Like that entire lower bowl, all that stuff, all those seats, entire 100 level, the clubhouses that are behind it, the facilities that are behind it, that's all going to be gone. Like it's just going to be vacant, and the Blue Jays are going to have like a very finite amount of time to replace it with all sorts of new stuff that's going to go around the lower bowl. So it's absolutely like it's dramatic when you look at what's happened to this point, but. I don't even think that we understand how dramatic what's coming is going to be.
2: Yeah, more to come for sure. The seats in the 100 level will be replaced. There will be some club seating down there. Um, but even already, I mean, it's a different it's a different feel um, to be at the ballpark and watching this team play in a in a different environment. And it is a different looking team, I think, even if uh, they did kind of revert to some of their old ways in the opener. Although, you know, reverting to your old ways if it's hitting five home <laughs> runs, like that's good. That's the kind of regression you want to be you want to be going back to. Um the Jays will welcome that. And it's still a team that is doing some things in different ways. And to me, what stands out most on that front is just Kevin Kiermeyer. I mean, it's quite an experience to watch Kevin Kiermeyer play, I, I think especially defensively. I was looking at this before we started recording. This is a guy who has a seven war season couple five war seasons like he has been an elite player in the major leagues before and what we're seeing from him right now is absolutely elite player it's not even just like all-star player we're seeing elite player impact player now is he going to sustain this all season of course not he's not going to hit home runs at this rate he's not going to be driving in runs at this rate that's fine he might miss some time he's 32 he's not 25 anymore but For him to even demonstrate for an 11 game stretch that he can play at an elite level. Because again, that's what this is. This is like, you know, down ballot MVP production from your number nine hitter who's making incredible catches in the outfield, who's cutting balls off. Like even that ball in left center field, Spencer Torkelson hits it. Kevin Kiermaier like chasing it down, trying to get a play at second base after the game. He was basically like crushed that he didn't get Spencer Torkelson at second base on a ball that like for a lot of outfielders, that might be like at the wall. They're picking it up. Torkelson's comfortably rounding second base. Like this is the kind of play that we're seeing right now. And again, it's not going to continue at this
1: level, but it's been pretty impressive to watch. It's funny, I remember when the Blue Jays uh, signed Kevin Kiermaier this offseason, I wrote, I did like a deep dive at Sportsnet and it was, I don't know what it was called, like like what Kevin Kiermaier could bring to the Blue Jays and I kind of broke it down Um, and the first section was defense and the second section was base running. And then it was offense and then it was whatever else, right? But I put that was purposeful that I put defense and base running like at one and two, because this was the idea with Kevin Kiermaier. The Blue Jays didn't like acquire Kevin Kiermeyer thinking that he was going to hit 400 or whatever he's hitting right now through 11 or 12 games. Like I think the blue Jays are probably very pleasantly surprised by that, but I don't think that's why they signed Kevin Kiermeyer. They signed him for the overall package. And so much of that with him is like his defense and base running. And we just get uh, in our position, like, you know, as media and, and elsewhere, like we just get way too fixated on like, what's the guy's OPS? What's his batting average? Like if you're just a DH if you're Brandon Belt, okay, that's when you go, all right, what's your OPS? Like how often are you walking? How often are you slugging? With a guy like Kevin Kiermaier, it's really a total package and I think that, you know, as the Blue Jays sought to really like diversify skill sets on their roster, um sought to like improve their base running, sought to improve their outfield defense. They looked at how well-rounded Kevin Kiermaier was in those areas, some of the elite skills that he clearly Still has you look at his stats this year. Do I think that his offensive production is going to maintain throughout the rest of the season? No, I do not. Do I think that his sprint speed and his outs above average is going to maintain throughout the rest of the season? Yes, I very much do. I think that he's going to continue being just that good. So, I think the Blue Jays looked at the nine million dollars or something around there that they offered Kevin Kierkegaard for one year and they said, Yeah, he's going to outperform this salary considering all around contributions considering that war number that you cited which includes the value of of defense and base running he's going to outperform the salary uh you know if he's able to be healthy coming off of hip surgery and i think that's why they acquired him
2: well yeah and and already he's been worth point seven war <laughs> so you know he's coming close to to making up that contract if you go on a dollars per war you know within the first month of the season so it's shaping up to be a great deal for the Jays, an impact deal. This is, you know, exactly what you could have hoped for. It's pretty much the best-case scenario version of, of Kevin Kiermeyer. And, and I think, too, like offensively, he was kind of, you know, half-joking after the game on Tuesday. He said he had set a goal for himself uh, this season to not hit any home runs because that can kind of keep him geared toward the opposite field, making sure that he's letting the ball travel into the zone, getting a good look. Not trying to get you know uh, cheat on the ball and and really sell out for home runs, um, then all of a sudden he hits a home run. So it, it, you know they'll they'll take that, but it's not just that. And obviously Tuesday was it might be the game of the year for Kevin Kiermaier, right? Like that was it's going to be tough to beat a home run robbery in front of a sellout crowd and hitting a home run. Well
0: hit ball right field and it's gone first as a Blue Jay for Kevin. Run away and he gets run. Yeah,
2: he's plus two. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just that. And, you know, I was even reflecting back to the series in Kansas City, which you and I were both at, Arden. And there was a play in one of the games where he hits like a bleeder up the middle, like just this little ground ball. And he ends up at second base with a double. You know, this is the kind of play that should not happen in the major leagues, but it's what he's capable of doing because. He is just out there looking for any advantage, and because he's healthy, because his hips are under him, he's able to take advantage of his speed and really play with a sense of abandon.
1: I promise you that I said on this podcast over the off season like just watch Kevin Kiermeyer become a fan favorite within the first month of the year because he's gonna turn a single into a double at some point and he's gonna rob a you know somebody of a hit in the outfield at some point and I probably would have said like over the first month. I didn't think it was gonna be over the first week. Then I was talking. <laughs> for, I was talking to Kevin before the opener, like at BP, because I was just kind of like get, getting some you know thoughts from the outfielders on the new dimensions and the walls, like how they're playing, right? Because they all went out there. In the afternoon, Mark Budzinski, the Blue Jays outfield coach, went out there with his fungo and some pitching machines like fireballs off the wall. And it was like, oh, okay, yeah, the wall's like kind of hard. And like right now the bounce is kind of dead, but maybe that'll change. And oh, hey, there's around the bullpens, we've got these new chain link fences with these stanchions. And there are like some interesting areas at the top of those chain link fences where you could get some unexpected bounces. The Blue Jays did all that work. Then Bud like walked all the outfielders around the wall and showed them Various unique angles and things to expect. So I was talking to like Farshow and, and Kiermeier and guys about this and, and uh, Kevin says to me, he goes like, I just hope like at some point this season, I get the opportunity to like pull a ball back over that eight foot wall in center. I just hope that opportunity comes to me at some point this year. He didn't say at some point in the first two innings <laughs> of the home opener. When that happened, I was like, are you kidding me? Baseball is just – it's stranger than fiction sometimes. That Like something like that would just – happen immediately I don't I don't know how you would have set odds on it but to be like yeah within the first two innings of the Blue Jays season playing before these new outfield dimensions of Kevin Kiermaier will get the opportunity to and then succeed at robbing a home run over the center field wall it's just it's mind-boggling that that actually
0: happened as Kerry Carpenter hits one to center field backpedaling Kiermaier jumps He took a home run away in the very first game of the season. He's going to have no trouble being popular here, Buck. You can make this up. Unbelievable.
2: Yeah, such a cool moment. Afterwards, he said he was basically on cloud 9. You could tell he was very excited as you would expect after after a play like that. This is a guy who before the game started, he's doing pull-ups on the Blue Jays duckout. Like he's pretty clearly excited to be a Blue Jay. Um, it was quite a scene <laughs> down there. And you know, we're talking about the the actual catch, of course, as we should, but you know, there are a couple of things in that outfield on Tuesday that that I did notice. Um, and on that play where Kiermaier going back um, to, to make that catch against Carpenter, it's really interesting when you watch the replay, you see Dalton Varsho sprinting over to center field just in case that ball had rattled away from Kiermaier. Varsho would have been there. And then later, Kiermaier, I think it was that same inning with Manoa struggling, there was a home run hit to right field. Springer's up against the wall. Kiermaier, meanwhile, with the the high wall now in right field the 12 to 14 foot wall, Kiermaier is sprinting over into right field. And look, this is what they should be doing. They're major league players. This is like their job to hustle and to back up. So I'm not saying it's like that remarkable, but at the same time. Didn't see that every day last year, and that's nothing against Teoscar Hernandez and Lourdes Gurriel Jr., who are good baseball players and are going to help major league teams win games this year. But it's a different style of play, and it's just worth noting that Varsho, Kiermaier, Springer, these guys are on it early this season.
1: Well, and that's part of what Bud went over with them before the game was like we need to be like on our backups here in the in the outfield because you can get some unexpected bounces that will yeah. for like Springer in right field with that like bullpen that juts in, it's 359 in the power alley to right center, you might get a bounce that goes back in the center field, right? And could so like Springer like if for he can kind of play it square and try to read it, but it might bounce like laterally unexpectedly in a direction that he is not moving towards. And then he has to get moving and accelerate in that direction. So that's why you're going to see, on balls to right and left Kevin Kiermaier sprinting in either direction and honestly it's like it's Kevin Kiermaier he'd do this anyway I had one I think this is for that story I did on him and I don't think I ended up using it but I remember I pulled up all this like his all these clips of him nearly like running over his corner outfielders with Tampa because this, he just he, he thinks he can catch everything from foul down to foul line like he honestly does so he just chases everything with its serious intent but yeah that's going to be more important now at Rogers Center with those those, like juts at the bullpens coming in because you might get some balls that bounce laterally in a way that you're not expecting so that is like one of the things that blue jays went over before the game that and also the point that like the walls are hard the old walls had some give so don't show was telling me like yeah i'm not i i need to be cognizant of the fact like i can't run into that wall at full speed because I'm going to knock myself out. That wall is is really hard there. So that's, that was part of the sort of the, the reconnaissance that uh, Mark Budzinski was, was relaying to his outfield just before the game.
2: And it's interesting, you know, talking to people around the Jays and then also asking AJ Hinch about this before the game. There's a sense that it'll probably take a couple days for these outfielders to get comfortable with it. Probably not longer than that, which is interesting. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, yep, it's new right now. It's an adjustment right now. Eventually, it'll become a slight advantage to the Jays as new teams come in and they're familiar with it. But these are great athletes and they adjust quickly. And so that advantage will probably last like a day or two
1: max. Do you want to make any like grand overreactions to how the ballpark is playing off of the uh, one game (laughs) that we've seen with balls in play being hit towards that outfield? I do think we're going to see a lot of
2: homers. I think it's going to be a homer friendly park. And it already was. And I think that's probably going to be more so the case in 2023 and beyond. What about you?
1: Honestly, the only one that stands out to me from the opener was the Bichette one to right center. Yeah. And Bo looked like he was targeting that all, all night with his swings. Um, and he, and the, look, he got one, right? But I that one, I'm like, maybe it goes off the wall last year. I don't know that it's caught. I'm fairly certain that it's not a homer last year at the Rogers Center and like that's it's probably one of those that was like it's probably a homer at Yankee Stadium and like you know Great American Ballpark or whatever but I bet you that at the majority of MLB parks that's not a home run.
0: swings at the first pitch and drives it out to deep right field curling at the wall it's gone Bo Bichette starts the 8th with his fourth home run of the season, it's
1: the But that's the only one from the opener that stands out to me as like a quote unquote Rogers Center homer. I thought the rest of them were pretty true homers, like balls that were crushed and gonna be out anyway.
2: Yeah. I mean we'll see how it how it plays. It's obviously early, um, but it's a cozy setup. And maybe some of that is the seats, right? Where you know you don't have that gap. It just everything is kind of drawn in, which is great again from a fan experience i think also just viewing it whether you're there in person or or watching on tv i think it looks better who needs a 10 foot gap between the wall and it's something it's kind of funny because like i literally never thought about that in all the years i've watched games at rogers center it never even occurred to me that there was a gap between the fence and the seats and then you kind of realize when they close it it's like oh yeah they should have closed that years ago but better now than later
1: I mean, they, that was so that they could make it a football field, right? Like, cause they would rotate yeah. things. And so, like, that's why they had that. And so also for concerts and things like that it was more of a multi-purpose facility, which made sense in the late eighties and early nineties. That's what people wanted, but it's 2023 now and it's a ballpark and people want a ballpark Uh, and it is uh, becoming that it's about 30% ballpark now. And after uh, next winter, it should be close to 100% ballpark. The thing I would caution against is just like reading anything into the balls that we see in play right now and saying, Oh, this is going to be a home or happy place. Oh, offense is going to be this, or it's going to be that. Like, honestly, like just from actually talking to people who've done this work with modeling and with kind of trying to project how it's going to play. You need Two to three years of balls in play to actually feel confident in saying, okay, the ballpark plays this way until you have like, that's the sample that you need. That's the amount of data, not just one game. And honestly, not (laughs) even just 81, honestly, not even 81 games. We're talking three seasons worth of data before, like people who actually do this for a living will be like, okay, I can say with some certainty that Roger Center plays this way, because like the Blue Jays have done like this work, the dimensions of the walls, the heights, the angles, like that's all, that's not a mistake. Like that's, that's all purposeful, right? Because that's because like the Blue Jays took batted ball distributions and overlaid them on different dimensions and different heights and things like that. But you, it's so hard to account for a lot of the other sort of factors there when you think about, well, roof open versus roof closed. And then what's the wind with, you know, various at various months and when you know the roofs open during the day and during the night what's the air temperature how does that affect it um you know how the amount of foul ground right like how many what's that gonna mean you know like the netting right the netting is higher now in various parts and the ball hits a net and it's dead automatically like all that stuff factors into it and a lot of that stuff is really hard to account for in a model on a computer just until you just get balls flying in the real world and actually see how it happens so I think the Blue Jays feel they've done the best job possible to make it neutral to what it was in the past but ultimately I mean if you're working with a pretty imperfect system for doing that so like I think you know I think you're ultimately like absolutely there's gonna be Doubles that are now going to be homers. I think there might be homers that now become doubles. So maybe that that kind of counterbalances. Um, but ultimately, like we just are not going to know for years, for like three years, how this ballpark truly plays. So I would say just be careful about you know anyone who's saying this ballpark is this today.
2: <laughs> yeah, of course. There's no substitute for data. We need more information there. Um, but absent that that information. If I had to guess, I'm going to guess that it's going to be a home or happy place. Um, but yes, that is a guess at this point.
1: Well, the other thing I, I have come to understand is that like size of outfield is a massive factor. As well. And so this is a smaller outfield to patrol. And the Blue Jays outfield defenders, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, have gone a lot better. So I think the Blue Jays are actually legitimately going to have a very high outs above average defensively this year because, like, there's you know, Kevin yeah. Kiermeyer and George Springer and of are just patrolling less ground like that's like that's part of the Coors field effect honestly is that like the outfield is huge man in Kansas City you were there that outfield is massive (laughs) it's so big so like at a certain point like you could push the walls back to 500 feet but then you're just creating more ground for your outfielders to cover and they just can't like actually feasibly cover that much they're gonna have all kinds of doubles and triples falling in right so i that's part of why i think like outfield like size of outfield is really meaningful in how a ballpark plays and how a team does defensively from an outfield standpoint it's kind of related to how like when you order some of the best outfield defenders in mlb year over year it's almost always the speediest guys Because speed is huge in outfield defense. like It really does correlate really strongly. And hey, man, what are we seeing from Kevin Kiermaier this year? Absolutely elite, like 95th percentile sprint speed. It adds up. Yeah, absolutely. You have to have that um, that speed. Kiermaier right now has
2: the health to cover that ground. Varsho, young, fast. He can cover that ground. Springer, giving you some good reads um, in right field, making good decisions, throwing better. It's a very, very strong defensive outfield.
1: The Blue Jays sprint speed leaders so far through 11 games. Number one, Kevin Kiermeyer, Number two, Whit Merrifield. Number three, George Springer. Varsho at five. So like yeah. Kiermeyer, Springer, Varsho in your top five, like that's one point on that. It's huge to have your three outfielders, like being some of your fastest players on the team. Point number two on that is, Number one, two, three, Kiermaier, Merrifield and Springer to the point that we were making a few podcasts ago. Blue Jays lead the league in fast veterans. Those guys are all like 33, 34. Matt Chapman's up there on the list as well. And we should talk about Chapman too. That's a guy who's like going to turn 30 later this month. Blue Jays lead the league in those speedy veterans. Yeah, Chapman's been great. I mean, he's been such a difference maker for this
2: team. Maybe this is one of those walk years that we've seen from guys like Marcus Semien and Robbie Ray here in Toronto certainly setting up to be that way so far he was one of those five home runs on opening day continues to hit obviously we know about the defense and again this is not going to be sustained to the level that he's shown so far this season but doesn't have to be he can hit 260 and still put up a five or six war season still end up on MVP ballots like this is really impressive it's a sign that some of those swing changes that he made um and didn't look entirely comfortable at all times in spring training he was still working through some things as he made some adjustments there with his stride but uh it's working it's working really well right now and the jays have to be thrilled with what they're getting from chapman
1: it's another reminder about spring stats there's probably no shortage of people at the end of spring training who were saying man matt chapman looks lost like what's going on he's in his head the swing changes aren't taking and then literally from game one he's been raking you know it's so interesting though because and,
2: and yeah that's a that's a great you know that's a great point But you know some of the guys on the Jays roster who didn't get a lot of reps in spring, whether it's Alejandro Kirk, whether it's Brandon Belt, they actually are starting off pretty slowly. And to me, it's like at least Chapman was in there, at least he was getting those reps. Kirk, uh, you know, he's he's been he's been slowly kind of showing signs of of coming around um, in all phases of of his game. Belt as well had a three hit game in the opener on Tuesday. That was a much needed sign for the Blue Jays. Um, Even Chris Bassett, you know, as he was, he was working through some things in spring and that has continued to be an adjustment period for him, which we'll, we'll get to that later. But with Belt in particular, I do think that the lack of at-bats that he had in spring are really showing themselves now. And of course he's 34 years old. You're not going to tell him you need to have 70 spring at-bats and we're going to make this call for you. You're not going to dictate terms on a veteran who you're signing to a $9.3 million deal. You obviously have some trust in his knowledge of himself. But in hindsight, he probably did need more at-bats because he wasn't ready to start this year. That's pretty clear.
1: So let's say this. You want to look at spring process rather than results, right? Because like, yeah, the the process with Belt – right now is that uh like he is swinging and missing a lot in the zone <laughs> Uh outside the zone as well but like the swing and miss like that's that's not good that's not what you want to see going forward it was interesting to see the x there the opposite field hits for belt uh in the home opener I'm not smart enough to tell you if that just means that a he's trying to do that or like b his bats coming around and so like maybe like that's why the balls were going to the opposite field like you're going to see defensive alignments against belt all year long where the outfielders are shaded to the right and that shortstop is like as close to second base as he possibly can be with the new shift restrictions cuz historically like that's how Brandon Belt has batted the ball and he will historically play to those he will he should play to those tendencies going forward But I think that also gets to the point about Belt where it's like you have a substantial track record here of this guy like being good and having a good process and having a good approach and that working for him. So I think he's earned a bit more runway than for us to just like write him off after a a rough for six or seven games.
2: For sure. For sure. And, you know, I think that in spring it was the right call to let him guide that process because he's the one who's... Uh, you know, best uh, able to answer questions about what kind of timing uh, he needs and and where his pain is at as he recovers um, from a knee operation, says he's feeling good, you're going to trust him at at that point. You brought him in here with the understanding that he was going to be an important voice in that. He's not 21 years old, um, although hopefully they'd listen to a 21-year-old as well. But what I'm saying is, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, clearly, like he's striking out multiple times every single game until tuesday these were not major league caliber at bats he was striking out 60 of the time knowing what we know now those at bats should have been taking place in the grapefruit league they should have been taking place maybe he should have started the season on the il knowing what we know now um, because it was not competitive but at the same time you got to give him a chance to work it through and this is where you know as the jays were facing the angels this weekend you have three left-handed starting pitchers Of course, that's not ideal. You kind of want Brandon Bell to be able to get in there against some righties, get some timing, shorten up his swing. He told Shadavidi after the game on Tuesday that he was deliberately trying to just be a bit shorter to the ball, try to make some more contact. um, And obviously it worked with that three-hit game. So this is a good hitter. We don't want to forget that it was as recent as 2021 that he hit 29 home runs in about 100 games. That's an incredibly impressive offensive display so you're not going to be in a rush to write him off um, especially with a 9.3 million dollar investment but they needed to see some signs of life because there's only so long when you're trying to compete every game against the best teams in the in the league well not the tigers but the rays are coming to town and (laughs) you know i think you need to find ways to produce as much as possible so you, you don't want to send a guy out there who's not feeling it offensively Clearly Belt wasn't, but maybe this is a sign that he can get things going.
1: That swing note is interesting because maybe that explains the two opposite field hits that we saw in the opener. The big things for me are just like the chase rate for him like needs to come down. And over the course of his career, he's been a guy who's very stubbornly hasn't chased. So I like I think there's you can have some confidence in that happening. And then just doing damage on good pitches to hit in the zone. It's like not doing damage on those pitches on the plate that you're working to get to so that you can drive them. That needs to come around and, and maybe some of the swing stuff and just, yeah, some of the reps that, that he clearly needs will will help with that. The guy whose process I have zero concerns with is Matt Chapman, uh, who, like, yeah, is leading the league in every offensive category you can imagine, and the results are amazing, but you look at how he's getting to those results, not just, like, balls are falling in or he's finding gaps, or it's, like, this guy is driving everything
0: 1-1, slugged out to right center field, hit pretty well. Green's at the wall, it's gone! The red hot ride with Matt Chapman rolls on his third home run of the season.
1: Left Leads baseball right in barrels. Leads it in barrels per plate appearances. Leads baseball in hard hit rate. Second in baseball in balls hit 95 miles per hour or harder. Off of his bat, and he is only second because Vlad is first. (laughs) The process stuff for Matt Chapman is so so encouraging. Like it tells you that, like mechanically, like everything is sound for him. He's seeing pitches really well. Like he must be so confident in the box right now. That toe tap that he added. I mean, part of that was the Matt Chapman wanted to use the whole field. Like he felt like he got really pull happy. In 22, and you can go back earlier in his career, and he was much more of an all-field hitter. And you look at the results so far of that like quest to use the whole field more often, and it seems to be paying off. Like Matt Chapman to this point in the year, like he already has four opposite field hits. He had only 18 last year, Ben, all of last season. He had only 18, and this is an everyday player. Uh, he has four already this year. Like, it took him 18 plate appearances to get those four this year. It took him, like, 50 to get to four last year. So those signs are beyond, like, obviously the results, which are great. Those process indicators from Matt Chapman, super, super encouraging.
2: Yeah, I'm sure when the Jays are looking at the hard-hit leaderboards of uh, the, the players in baseball who are making the best contact, and they see Vlad and Chapman and Bo... At the very top of those lists, that's got to be so encouraging. And you know, as for Chapman, they need some players who are going to have career years, right? If you're gonna if you're gonna win this division, which should still be the goal, even if the Rays are undefeated, and finding you know ace pitchers out of nowhere like Jeffrey Springs and Drew Rasmussen, you're going to need some career years as well. You know, you can't just beat the Rays and and the Yankees with them having you know these career years and you not. You need to have some players step up. And maybe Chapman's going to be one of those players for the Jays. They will need some of those guys. And Chapman is certainly capable of that.
1: The amazing thing about Chapman as well, before we take a break here, uh, I can actually make a case for you that he's been unlucky this year. Matt Chapman leads MLB in barreled balls that didn't result in home runs. He's barreled nine balls that haven't left the park to this point. He's hit three balls, 400 plus feet that didn't leave the yard Ben. Wow. And two of them were outs. He's hit two 403-foot outs this year. I mean, there have been only 36 balls hit 400 feet or further that didn't produce a home run across MLB this season. Matt Chapman has three of them. It's like he has nearly 10% of those events. So if wow. anything, he's actually been a little bit unlucky. Yeah, that's, that's wild. It reminds me of Carpenter with the Tigers who hit –
2: about 799 feet of fly ball outs to Kevin Kiermeyer the other day. You're just kind of thinking, man, for the Tigers team that has like very, very little going right for it, that's pretty rough. But yeah, for Chapman, good news. And, uh, I, I'm sure the Jays can reasonably expect that more of those balls will fall in as they move ahead.
1: Uh, we should step away and take a break. But when we come back, I have some uh, things I want to say about Dalton Varsho. And then uh, we should also recap just what the hell is going on with this uh, starting rotation, which has been the weird Achilles heel for the Blue Jays. All that and so much more when we continue on At The Letters.
2: Listen to At The Letters ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: It continues on At The Letters, Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith. Thanks, as always, to our producers, Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. And thanks, as always, to you for listening. You can send us an email. It's at the letters at sportsnet.ca. Ben, early impressions of Dalton Varshow because we covered off the uh, the other two new guys in, in Belton and, uh, and Kiermaier in the first half. And we're going to get Chris Bassett. A bit later, but early impressions of how Dalton Varsho's impact in the uh, the 2023 Toronto Blue Jays.
2: I think he's been great. I think that at this point, the Jays are two for three with their additions of position players. Uh, those lefty bats that they added, belts obviously a whiff uh, at this point, and uh, c- clearly Kevin Kiermeyer has been a great addition. And I think Dalton Varsho belongs in that category. He has looked like an impact player when he's hitting. Uh, We're seeing him put the ball in the air. We're seeing him make really good contact consistently. We're seeing him drop down a few bunts here and there. Uh, Great base runner. Someone who's got seemingly really good instincts on the base pass and in the outfield where he's just cutting off balls, getting to balls in the corner. I haven't seen, I don't think, any balls like rattling around left field while opponents circle the bases. Uh, Varsho, to me looks like an all-star he looks like someone that you want on your team for years to come and that's what the Blue Jays wanted Uh, they certainly paid a high price to get him because Gabriel Moreno is is also a very very good player but this has the makings of a win-win trade one where Arizona benefits and the Blue Jays I think are very happy with Dalton Varsho and I think they should be because he's been tremendous so far.
1: With all the normal caveats, right, week and a half into the season, it's small sample theater, it is what it is. I am adjusting my expectations upwards on Dalton Varshow, yeah. and I am like, I have to do a mea culpa. I was low on Dalton Varshow, and I was wrong coming into the season. And what I missed was that this is a player who's still developing, and this is a player who's still getting better. This guy's twenty-six. Yeah. Right. Like he's that's two years younger than Kevin Biggio, Santiago Espinal, and Danny Jansen. The Blue Jays, uh, as I mentioned in the first half, acquired Kevin Kiermeyer because they believed he would raise the bar for outfield defense and he would bring a lot of, you know, base running. Like they acquired Dalton Varsho because the Blue Jays think that he's a really good all-around player who is still on the upswing and still getting better and actually has a much higher ceiling to reach over the 4 years of which he has they have club control over him remaining and I think that we are already seeing that development happen this year, like we're already seeing Dalton Varsho unlock some of that previously untapped potential. He hit his first opposite field home run last week against uh, against Kansas City Royals since 2021.
0: Blue Jays leading two to one. And Varsho sends one in the air, fairly well hit to the opposite field. And it's gone. Dalton Varsho's first home run as a Blue Jay. And it is now three to one.
1: This is a guy who had 27 bombs last year. So, went over the wall in the opposite field for the first time in years. He set a new career high in max exit velocity on opening day. He's put 25 balls in play this year and four of them rank within the top 35 hardest hit balls of his career. So that is four balls in play this year that are within the 95th percentile for his career. We're talking about like a career sample of nearly 700 balls in play. We're seeing different things from him that you haven't seen that much before. And that can be extended to the performance against left-handed pitching as well. Like Dolan Varsha came into this year saying in 2022, I got two pull happy i was only looking for like that ball inside from lefties that that i could turn on i wasn't staying with that pitch away and like trusting my hands and my bat speed that i can keep that pitch fair and like live off some of those singles and doubles to left field and now like you're seeing like such a better approach against lefties i already mentioned that opposite field homer that he hit the first since 2021 that's a that's a massive sign for him we've already seen this year two walks against left-handed pitchers. He's got two walks and 16 plate appearances against left-handed pitching this year. You know how many walks Dalton Varsho had against left-handed pitching last year? He had three in 129 plate appearances. He's already got two and 16. Like, I just, I cannot, like, state enough, like, how massive some of these indications are for Dalton Varsho continuing to develop. And I go back to a plate appearance he had against Tyler Anderson in the Angels series. The Angels threw three lefties at the Blue Jays, and, and Varsho was in there for two of those games. And I remember Anderson got Varsho out with cutters in each of his first two plate appearances. And then Dalton Varsho made the adjustment in the third plate appearance. He chased another cutter and he made the adjustment. And I know he did because I talked to him about it and he told me the adjustment that he made. And it's just remarkable that he was able to do that like within a game, within a plate appearance. And then he laid off the next cutter and laid off another really tough sinker. Like with Anderson, it's really tough for a left-handed hitter to differentiate between his sinker and his cutter. They look very similar out of his hand and Varsho made an adjustment to them, laid off some really tough pitches just off the plate drew one of those walks against left-handed pitching and actually knocked Anderson out of the game with that walk. So I just think that like for all those reasons and more, Dolan Varsha has been very impressive this year. And I think the Blue Jays have a player who is really blossoming and coming into his own and is only going to continue to get better.
2: Well, it would be huge if you can continue that progress against left-handed pitching because this is a, a clearly a question for, for the Jays is what do they do? When, with their outfield on days that you're facing a left-handed starter, and clearly Kiermaier or Varsho or both will have to be in there. And Kiermaier, right now, you, you want his glove in there. You're happy to, you know, take a bit of a hit offensively, um, but there could come a time where his back cools down. Maybe he's a guy who goes to the bench. Varsho slides to center field. Maybe you're playing Whit Merrifield in the corner at that point. But then, if Varsho is giving you some real production left on left. You feel more comfortable with that, and I think it's a good point. you know his youth is there twenty six years old. This is an age where guys take strides um, they've had some experience in the major leagues. Varsho certainly has, and if he can can build on that to the point that he's maybe an average hitter or even slightly below against lefties, but you're
1: comfortable having him in there, that would be a nice stride forward for the jays. he's just such a smart, heady ball player I know this kind of strays into like the the soft science part of it and not you know not really territory that you and I often tread but like he is just his reads in the outfield are tremendous when he threw out um I forget who he threw out at the plate in the Royals series, but you look at the, just the way he positioned himself behind that ball in left field, just how just like smart and cerebral he was with the way that he approached that, the little curl that he took at the end, just to get everything as that he possibly could behind that throw. It was the second hardest throw of his career, by the way, Dolan Varsho, not a huge throwing arm, but like positioned himself so well on that play honestly just to get everything behind it and throw out a base runner at home and take a run off the board again like run prevention matters like a run prevented is just as uh, valuable as a run produced you see in partial do that Smart with the bunt decisions too, as you mentioned, right? Like those, those drag bunts to the first base side. Nobody does it more than Dolan Varsho in this game. He's 16 of 17 since 2021. Part of that is his speed. He's super fast home to first so like that helps them certainly but part of that is just the moments he chooses to do it and i look back to the one against detmers in the angels series where matt chapman just hit a grand slam the place is going nuts detmers on the mound is like gotta be feeling it where he's like oh geez i just gave up like four runs with one swing oh god what's going on here you know they're still showing replays of the chapman grand slam and far show immediately first pitch bang Drop down the bunt. What a perfect spot for it. Like what a perfect moment to do that. Executes it and then Detmers is out of the game. Again, Varsho knocks a starter out of the game with a heady, intelligent play like that bunt, just like the walk against Anderson, which drove him from a game. I just think that little things like that are actually really, really big things. Well,
2: I have a theory that it's easier to be a heady, intelligent player when you have the athleticism and the health, of course, that Varsho has because he moves around so well, he's able to get himself in good positions. I mean, you could be, you know, let's say Alejandro Kirk or Brandon Belt, somebody who doesn't have the foot speed of a Dalton Varsho. You might know in your head that this is a great time to, to drop down a bunt. But if you're not confident that you can beat it down the line, you're probably not going to do it. And so Varsho has the awareness, has the uh, baseball IQ to make those calls, and he has the athleticism to back them up and to put himself into those positions and execute. So it's really a great combination. Um, I think it's a welcome addition um, to the Blue Jays to have players who can who can do that. They've certainly got a bunch of them. You know, George Springer makes some really good decisions out there. You know, you've you've obviously got. A guy like Kevin Biggio, who's regarded as a great base runner. And so all those things can add up. Kevin Kiermeyer in that discussion, of course. But you need those. It's, it's a long season. You're playing a lot of really close games. Um, sometimes you'll hit five home runs, but sometimes you won't. And a play like that can
1: make the difference between a win and a loss. It has been a much more aesthetically pleasing uh, brand of baseball to watch from the Toronto Blue Jays. I'll, I'll say that. The only place where that has not been true, honestly, is in the starting pitching. Aside from Kevin Gosman, you know, not a lot to like about the way the Blue Jays starters have been performing to this point. Uh, I'll let you take your pick, man. Would you like to dive in on Alec Manoa, who looked really rough in the home opener? Would you like to go back to Chris Bassett, who's continuing to have, you know, figure things out with his mechanics and his velo? Uh, Or do you want to look at, uh, you know, Jose Barrios and, and Yusei Kikuchi? A lot to choose from, which is not
2: where the Blue Jays <laughs> want to be, right? They want to just have everything cruising along. Um, and really, Gosman, as we record this, he's about to start on Wednesday. But as we record this, he's had two great starts. Um, and that's where you want to be. I-, I think it's interesting to start almost with with Gosman in relation to Bassett, because there is a contrast there. Kevin Gosman also had to make a lot of adjustments in spring training with respect to the pitch timer, what it would mean for him to start his delivery with his rocking back and forth on the mound. Going into spring, if you had asked us, Arden, I would guess that we probably would have pegged Kevin Gosman and Chris Bassett as probably the two guys who would have the biggest adjustments to make with respect to adapting to the pitch clock I certainly would
1: have um, pointed to those guys I would have thrown Manoa in there just because he was one of the slowest workers right last year so I would have thrown Manoa in there as well and he has been making some
2: adjustments Um, it's interesting too just as a quick note how in Kansas City he was throwing the ball out of play um, to buy himself some time at least that's me saying that Alec Manoa said that he just was not liking the balls so let's note that that was what he said but I, I think that in a broad sense, at least, uh, that's going to be a tactic that some pitchers use to get themselves a few more seconds is, oh, I don't like this ball, restart the clock, get a new ball. But back to Bassett and, and Gosman. you look at, at Gosman. he's been able to make those adjustments really well. Bassett has not so far. And that's by his own admission. He's searching for his mechanics. He's been having issues with the pitch comp technology. He's been trying to get on the same page as his catchers, Jansen and then Kirk. It really has been a challenge for him. The mechanical issues from what he uh, said publicly have contributed to a drop in velocity, which is really not good because it's not like he was working with 96 to begin with. He's down about a mile, a mile and a half on his fastballs. And so it adds up to a pretty messy two starts for Bassett and he's kind of discombobulated from what we've seen so far. Now, his second start was better, but again, in contrast to Gosman, he has not been able to make those adjustments. It's just been a longer adjustment period and it makes sense. He has seven or eight pitches on any given night. There's a lot going on. He's had some technological mishaps with the pitch devices. It's been a challenge for him, but the Jays really do need him to figure this out, and ideally, it would have happened in spring training. Now, here they are. Is what it is, but they, he's a really important pitcher to this staff, and they need him to get it
1: sorted. I, I'm not a golfer. I don't know how many mulligans you get in golf, but I'm I'm willing to give Chris Bassett another one. I know I gave him one for the uh, for the the opener in St. Louis because, like as you said, Vila was down, execution was poor, and St. Louis just had a phenomenal game plan against them and yep. they were super aggressive a game that mulligan. I'm giving him another one for LA just because of everything that was going on in Anaheim. Um like start with this Danny Jansen was supposed to catch that game and then Danny Jansen came down with like a really bad stomach bug. So Alejandro Kirk finds out like day of the game, you're in there. Like you're you're catching them and Bassett threw to Kirk once in spring training. Yeah, not
2: much at all. He was working closely with Jansen in spring
1: exactly not a lot of familiarity there they hadn't been working together all week right like kirk hadn't been catching his bullpens kirk has no idea what chris bassett wants to do on the mound like they haven't got you know they did they had their pregame meeting and that's it it's just not enough for any pitcher in baseball but particularly one who throws eight pitches and is as fastidious as chris bassett is so already like behind the eight ball there now you need the pitch gom. like Chris Bassett in that outing now needs to call his own game because like the catcher does no clue yeah. uh what, what he wants to throw and then Chris Bassett gets out there onto the mound and finds out that his device is actually programmed to another pitcher on the Blue Jays staff and Chris Bassett will own it and say like that's my fault he accidentally changed the programming of the device when he was affixing it to his belt because he saw that Granky was using it on his belt and Casey and Bassett was like, oh, like I kind of want to use it on my belt as well, rather than my glove. And while he was affixing it to his belt, he kind of like accidentally pressed whatever the sequence of buttons is that changes the device's mode to another pitcher's programming. So then Bassett goes to press like the two-seamer button and it says curveball. And he goes to press the sweeper button and it says Four seamer. Like it was saying pitches that Chris Bassett doesn't even throw. And Chris Bassett throws a ton of pitches. So that's what's happening. And that's happening in real time on the mound while you're being like charged for automatic balls. Leadoff hitter is walked. And oh, by the way, here comes the best hitter on the planet in Mike Trout. Try executing to the best hitter on the planet when everything's going your way. It's hard. But when everything's spiraling on you, it's even harder. Mike Trout took Chris Bassett deep. Bassett took ownership for this after the game, for the mistakes and for the way that things went for him. But from after that, Trout played appearance on, once they got the pitch calm sorted, once like he had kind of explained a little bit to Alejandro Kirk what the process was going to be going forward, he was kind of Chris Bassett from that point forward, throwing eight different pitches. Swing and strikes was six different Pitches, I forget the total number of swing and strikes, but I believe it might have been close to double digits, if not into double digits. Tons of weak contact, more walks than you'd like, but also like a strike zone that wasn't perfectly adjudicated that day. I thought Chris Bassett looked like Chris Bassett after the the Mike Trout plate appearance, Um, and I would expect him to look more like himself going forward given the extensive track record. Once he sorts out some of these mechanical things and gets more over his back leg and stays kind of more coiled and is more directional towards the plate, I am willing to give him mulligans for both those two outings just because of some of the exceptional circumstances that he's dealing with.
2: Yeah, the, the circumstances were were definitely contributing. I think, it, and he did take ownership of this, as you say, but I think in some cases those were products of his own creation. You know, it's kind of like if I got locked out of my work email and I I couldn't find my passwords and I missed some important meetings or whatever the case, I mean – I think, you know, there's there's room to say, okay, we'll get him next time. Like, let's move on. But end of the day, like, I am responsible for those things, um, just as Chris Bassett is responsible for making sure that the pitch calm is there and that his mechanics are in line. So I, I do think, though, that I would expect a bounce back. I would expect that these starts are not representative of who he is, and I think that he's probably going to be more like the pitcher that the Blue Jays uh, expected to be signing because there is a lot going on. There are a lot of moving parts. So I think that the velocity, though, is an interesting question because at a certain point, and it's not now, I think that Chris Bassett does deserve some patience here, but at a certain point, you really would want to see him throwing harder if you're the Toronto Blue Jays. A a drop-off in velo for two starts, I agree. There are a lot of mitigating factors. You know, you're not going to gonna assume that that velo is never coming back, but if it gets to four starts and the velo is down, you're probably looking at a drop in velocity, and that's really not good. So I think the next couple starts, I'll be watching closely to see what that radar gun looks like, to see how comfortable he is with his mechanics, how much comfort he can get with pitch com. Because at a certain point, he's got to figure that stuff out. That's part of the challenge of being a major league pitcher in this day and age, is working within the restrictions of the pitch comm devices and the pitch clock. And it's especially important for Bassett. So figuring that out is really crucial for him.
1: That's absolutely fair with regards to the velocity. And the one thing you can look back at is like early in 2022, in April, like the velo wasn't quite there as well, and it came as the season went on so you know there's at least a little bit of precedent there that you know you can kind of trust what he's what he's telling us and and see if that's going to progress and i think the encouraging thing is that once he got past the first few batters really the first inning against the angels where he had someone who doesn't know how to call his game being forced to call his game <laughs> once he got past that and they got the the pitch comp sorted out chris bassett was able to be effective without peak velocity, right? Like he was still able to get a ton of swing and miss and a ton of weak contact without that that primo stuff. So I think that's encouraging for him going forward. If even over the final few starts of this month, he's still like 91, 92.
2: Yeah. And and Granky is a great comp for him. I mean that's kind of where the trajectory is probably going for Chris Bassett. Um but you'd probably rather that happens in year three of the contract where he's throwing 90, 91 um, as opposed to year one of the contract. And you know I asked around a little bit some executives with different teams, like at what point do you start getting worried or start reading into velocity? And they said, actually, it's pretty early. It's earlier than you might think that it becomes very predictive of what is to come in that season. So within you know a few weeks, if you see a drop off in velocity, that is very predictive of what is to come for the rest of the year. That does not mean that's the case for every pitcher. That does not mean that there won't be exceptions. But generally speaking, If after a few weeks, a pitcher's velocity is down, that means that is likely
1: what's going to continue. Well, then what do you make, good sir, of the fact that Alec Manoa in 2021 and 2022 was a 93, 94 mile per hour fastball guy and in the Blue Jays' home opener and the outing preceding it, not opening day, by the way, opening day, Manoa was like 93, 94, uh, but in his last two outings since, Manoa's been like 91, 92. What do you make of that?
2: I, I'd put it in a similar category where I would say, not good, not what you want to see. And yet, Manoa, like Bassett, has earned a lot of benefit of the doubt. I don't think anyone should be panicking here, but it's something to monitor. And in listening to him speak to the media after his start in the opener, he was clearly frustrated with his mechanics and he was saying he was searching for it mechanically. He said he was sometimes too much in mechanics mode on the mound, not enough in attack mode, not enough in compete mode. This is a challenge we've heard a few pitchers talk about this year. Um, For some it's worked really well, like Kikuchi for, for Manoa, at least on Tuesday, he felt like there was a bit too much thinking through the mechanics and he wasn't quite where he wanted to be in the flow of competing and the flow of really um executing out there and lo and behold the results velocity wise were not there so for me i don't know if you differ on this but for me i look at it and i say it's not good it's not what you want to see it's also not the end of the world it's something to monitor as they move ahead
1: it's been a little bit of whack-a-mole with Manoa, honestly, because uh, on opening day, like true opening day in St. Louis, the the velo was there, but his slider was not good. Like his slider got hit against uh, against the Cardinals. And then the second outing of the year, slider was much better, a lot more effective, but the velo wasn't there. And then in the home opener at Roger Center, velo wasn't there. And, I mean, the slider, like, the stuff was okay. Manoa just could not command it. Like, he was missing so consistently early with his slider uh, extension side. So, like, by which I mean, like, you know, away from a righty and back foot to a lefty. Like, he was just missing by so much that Tigers hitters just, like, were laying off of spin. And just sitting on fastballs and when those fastballs are 91 92 uh you know nick maton ends up like parking one right like that's and and i thought the patience and selectivity from the tigers was great as well in drawing as many walks as they did against manoa because he was leaving a lot of fastballs up in hittable locations i would have understood if the tigers were starting to get aggressive against those pitches but they really like worked an approach and Took their walks and were like this close to like blowing that thing wide open. It's a credit to Manoa that he actually only allowed three runs a night when he pitched, honestly, like pretty poorly. Um, But yeah, you could see him fighting his mechanics on the mound, honestly, with that slider. Like you could see him doing different things mechanically. And he's one of the better guys in baseball at making in-game adjustments and reading swings and reacting to what's happening in a game and making little adjustments um, I think he just had a hard time on Tuesday like finding it and then as you mentioned like got too into adjustment mode rather than just like all right what do I have that's working and let's use that let's compete let's battle let's find a way to maximize what is actually working for me today instead of trying to like regain the stuff that isn't so it's interesting because each time out for him it's just kind of been something a little different that has been off, um, and I can't really put my finger on exactly what's going on. I just know that uh, you know his side session is going to be uh, pretty involved when he throws it between uh, you know the the home opener start and his next one.
2: Well, yeah, give him credit for staying in that game and competing and finding ways to continue to get outs even when he did not have his best stuff, when he did not have his mechanics. I think it's also interesting. Manoa is someone that we've really only seen good. Like, he's been so consistently good as a major league pitcher, Cy Young finalist in his first season. And I I do think that he's entitled to work through some things um, and to develop on the go as still a young pitcher who's 25 years old and, and really shot through the upper minors of the Jays system, shot through the minors period of of the Jays system. Um, and so if he runs into uh, some struggles and, and has to work some things out in the majors, I think he's entitled to that. Now, you'd much rather he's doing that with 93-94 than 91-92. So that's worth monitoring. Um, and it would be a lot easier if, you know, guys like Kikuchi and Brios were giving a bit more consistency in the rotation to go along with Gosman.
1: It's just a, it's a weird time of year with with velocity because like even kevin gosman's fastball velocity has been down and like was down in his second outing of the year right like there were times in that one where he was like 90 91 like he reached back for 94 a few times um but like yeah he was probably without it in front of me i would say he probably averaged like 91 and a half or somewhere in there and what it was like six shutout innings (laughs) he struck out seven so it was a great outing for him
2: and and i would say with manoa's second outing and with gosman's second outing those were in kansas city in cold weather um you know like it it, it's not like it was below zero or anything but it was chilly in kansas city and again executives with other teams or, or any team will tell you that it's harder pitchers will tell you this it's harder to get
1: fully loose and to get your full velocity on a day that is that cold that's exactly what kevin gosman said to me after that outing when i asked him about it and he was like yeah it's kind of chilly out there and i was like i know i was sitting in the camera well like it's yeah. cold man it was cold in kansas city and it was even colder honestly in st louis on uh, at least one of the days if not a couple of them so it's the, yeah some of the early season velocity stuff like yeah like yes it's you obviously don't want to see it but there can be some some extenuating circumstances and factors that go into that. So I thought you put it well when you said like it means something different for each pitcher. Like it's a very individualized thing from pitcher to pitcher. Um, I don't think there's any reason for like a ton of panic or alarm around anyone with the Blue Jays so far. Like you look at it, like it's kind of funny. Jose Perrios, his velocity is fine. <laughs> his, his stuff is fine. It's moving like the velo's there. Uh, but if anything, like of the five pitchers in the Blue Jays rotation, he's got to be the one that you're the most worried about going forward. Yeah, there's a. I think the
2: worry is kind of scattered around at this point. Um, Not that there's necessarily (laughs) like. It's well distributed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know that there's deep, deep. Yeah, Burrios actually, long term, there should be real concern long term with Burrios. I mean, I understand why they made the deal at the time. I understand it, but he signed through 2028. He's making 20 plus million a year. It doesn't look like a good contract. It's just the way it is. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, He's still young enough at 28 for that whole perspective outlook to change um the Blue Jays working behind the scenes to make sure it does you know so we'll see at this point you know we all know how it looks and you know I, I think with Barrios like you say I mean the stuff is there he's sitting kind of 91 to 95 in a given start with his fastball and you know curveball and change up are, are in there but he's uh, someone who's going to see a lot of left-handed batters. Um, We talked about this before, but teams like to stack their lineups with lefties against Barrios. And he's just allowing a lot of hits, a lot of pretty solid contact. So I certainly don't have it all figured out, but you know, you look at the results, you look at the way he's getting there
1: and he looks more like a number five starter than a number two starter it's so baffling with brios and i'm just reminded of 22 right because it was like throughout the season 15 different times the blue jays thought they'd addressed it and thought they'd found what it was whether it was it was tipping or it was a mechanical thing it was lanes it was usage it was sequences and then each time it actually that didn't end up being the fix and i just remember like riding those waves throughout the year like you were talking to people and be like okay this is what it was this was the problem and it's good now And then I I did that like 15 times last year. And now I feel like I'm doing it again this year where it's just like baffling with Brios sometimes where he'll carve up Shohei Otani, right? Like he'll look amazing with certain sequences to really good hitters. And then it'll be like uh, Luis Renjifo who he falls behind and leaves a cookie to and gives up a bomb. Or like Hunter Renfro will get him on just a really poorly located fastball like there you know and then there will be these weird like pitches off the plate that bobby witt jr will come up with like a couple hits against otani had a double off of brios on like a slider like down below the zone like one of those balls that only otani gets to um so he'll give up damage on like those sort of pitchers pitches but then also he'll lay you know, a 92 mile per hour fastball is not moving a whole ton right into a hitter's happy zone, and pay the price for that as well. It just feels like the margin for error is so thin for him. Um, and yeah, I, I wouldn't blame him and the Blue Jays if they are looking at like just trying to, like just trying to adjust anything right now, just trying to find that one eureka moment to get him back to a place where uh, you know he, he can get out of these eye these outings that just spiral on him.
2: Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, time left for him. I think that there's certainly no danger of, of him losing that rotation spot. I mean, it's it's obviously his to, to roll with for uh, years. <laughs> so, you know, we'll see, um, we'll see what they're able to do to get better results. Um, and he is one of their best five options. So we'll see where it goes, really. I certainly don't have the answers for what to expect there.
1: Nice uh, soft uh, landing spot in his next one with the Tampa Bay Rays coming into town, huh?
2: That's, that's the challenge, right? And, you know, they don't play the Rays as much. They don't play the Yankees as much. But you still, um, you know, certainly coming up this weekend, that's going to be a real test for the Jays. I, I'm pretty interested to see how that series unfolds. I think it'll be a really good one. Hopefully the Dome's open at some point, maybe for a couple of those day games if the weather stays really nice here in Toronto. But should be a lot of fun. I mean, the Rays are a really, really good team with some great pitching. And uh, certainly the envy of baseball, I think, with the way that they've been able to come up with some pitchers uh, who are you know ace caliber jeffrey springs boom drew rasmussen like along with McClanahan, along with glass it is an impressive group
1: and it's incredible that like they lose zach efflin to the il a hit to the rotation and it's okay we'll just call up Todd bradley one of the best minor league starters like one of the top prospects in the game yeah
2: yeah, it's uh it's incredible,
1: very impressive.
2: And then they got some hitters too with Rosa and Franco having a great year and Yandy Diaz contributing. So, you know, it's a it's a really good team. It's a balanced team. Certainly way better than the Tigers. The Jays should watching the Tigers that opener, the Jays should sweep this series. Like I know you can't. You can't it's not that simple in baseball. They might lose the next two, but they
1: should sweep this series. Yeah, 2 out of 3 is fine. I think you want to win every series. It's hard to take. Like even the Royals. Royals are not a good team. And the Blue Jays, you know, lost a game to the Royals. It's hard to win a series. Mm -hmm. It really is. It is. Um yeah but yeah you know I'm, I've been like trying to bring this back around to something somewhat positive to end on so we're not just ending on a dour note Uh, but I, I think that's fair like the, the weekend series Blue Jays versus Rays two really good teams two good lineups two teams that if the Blue Jays do sweep the Tigers as you are 100% predicting that they are definitely going to do <laughs> uh, then uh, and I, I imagine the Rays will come in at like 13 and 0 trying to you know make history Uh, Friday Saturday Sunday like if the roof's open good pitching or at least for the Rays, good pitching uh you know like the, the ball's flying everywhere the new ballpark oh forget the roof open get to see what some of those outfield spaces look like with sun on them yeah man that'd be a good time that'd be a great series
2: and i'm excited for fans of the blue jays who are there in person to see the pace of play in real time, because it's amazing. It's it's awesome. I mean, in the time that we've taken to record this podcast, it, you could play seven innings. It's it's a, honestly the new rules are so good.
1: Yeah, you know what? Being on the sidelines uh, for the last, I haven't really felt that pace of play when the Blue Jays have been out here playing these like three and a half hour games. Like what was it? The finale in L.A. was over that was three was and a half hours. Yeah, that was. <laughs> The Blue Jays have played a couple uh, pretty long ones. But yeah, I do think that like over time, you're going to see a lot more of those kind of two hour and 30 minute games. It's just great for the sport. It's awesome. All right. uh, That's going to be it for us. Uh, I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank our producers, Nick Andrade and Christian Ryan. He's Ben Nicholson-Smith. I'm Arden Swelling. We'll talk to you next time on At The Letters.